Welcome to Sermons from First Alliance Church, equipping you to become a fully devoted and faithfully engaged disciple of Jesus. Here's today's message. Well, thank you, Nikki. It's a pleasure to be here. And you know, my uh, association with First Alliance goes as far back as I've been married because my wife and I were married on October the 16th, 1971 in First Alliance Church when it was downtown, I think, in Davisville and Young area. And then, of course, uh, your beloved senior pastor for many years, Ross Ingram, he was here from 1984 to 1999. And I was... uh, uh, pastoring at Rextel when he was here, and uh, he was my predecessor, and so there's that connection as well. And then you had Bruce Edwards as your pastor, and Bruce was an intern at Rextel uh, when I was there as a worshiper, and then Bruce and Donna were missionaries in Zaire for many years, sent out and supported by our church at that time. And then most recently, uh, Tim Sridharan uh, was a young man who grew up in our church, and Tim's father, Sri, and I served together as elders on the staff at Rextel. So there's many Many, many connections with First Alliance Church. So it's a pleasure for me to back, be back here this, today. Uh, and of course, mentioning Tim, uh, you are in the midst of a very interesting experiment where you have uh, two young men who are co-leading the church. You're going through a time of transition and through a time of revisioning as well. You've had a, a vision team that has been listening to God for your unique vision because churches, while we all worship Jesus, have unique uh, thumbprints, uh, unique redemptive potential. And so it becomes important for people to listen very carefully what that is. And so this is exciting to see where God will lead you through the vision that you've been given, which is a vision that goes deep and stretches wide as well. But having said that, there is one particular component, if you will, of a local church's vision that really belongs in every church's mission and vision. It's one that's easily forgotten, and it's one for which it is hard to maintain passion and focus. And yet it is something we meet at the very beginning of the New Testament, at the very beginning of the gospel, the first gospel according to Matthew. And that's kind of where I want to start. Now, of course, Matthew opens with uh, verse 1, which says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now you say, well, hey, that's a Christmas text. Hey, that's why the sermon is called Christmas in August. Now, we don't like genealogy. Genealogies are just boring, long lists of unpronounceable names. And frankly, even though I read through the Bible every year, I skip over many of the genealogies. But not this one. It is crucial because it meets us right at the very beginning of the New Testament. And it's also unique in a couple of ways. First of all, four women are mentioned. All the other genealogies... It's just the men. So-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. It's all the men, as if the men did it all by themselves. But this genealogy has got four women mentioned in it. So right away it's telling us it's at the very beginning of the story of Jesus. It's also uh, including women. And then here's something even more interesting. Three of the four women, uh, three of the four women are Gentile women. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, one of the women, but Tamar was Jewish, and Solomon the father of Boaz by Rahab, she was a Canaanite, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, Ruth was a Moabite, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, who was a Hittite. And so, isn't it interesting that in the opening movements of the New Testament, 
we find several interesting connections back to the old. First of all, it begins by saying, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Jesus did not appear in a historical vacuum to start a new religion called Christianity. Jesus coming to earth immediately connects all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant. And God made a covenant with Abraham that I will bless you, and through you all nations of the earth will be blessed. Now Israel, his descendants, failed in that mission to so worship God and obey him as to make Yahweh attractive to the nations. But God's plan was always to accomplish that promise of the Abrahamic covenant through a unique descendant of Abraham, was Jesus of Nazareth. And so right away we are introduced to that statement that Jesus is all about fulfilling the Great Commission. And we see the genealogies including three non-Israelite women in there. Moreover, when you go to the second chapter, you find the story of the worship of Jesus, the infant, by the Magi that we call the three wise men that we are familiar with at Christmas time. And look what it says about them in Matthew 2, verses 10 and 11. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him, and then opening their treasure, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and, and myrrh. Who are the first worshippers of Jesus in the New Testament? Not the Jewish people that he came to, but Gentiles. And so you see, right at the very beginning of our very first gospel, New Testament, Jesus' birth and arrival is connected to the covenant that God made with Abraham to bless the nations of the world, and we immediately see that being fulfilled already. It's a prophetic anticipation of what is going to happen. And all of this in the first target, a uh, first gospel, Matthew's gospel, which is particularly targeted to Israel. There are more uh, quotations from the Old Testament in Matthew's gospel than any of the other gospels. He's, he's presenting Jesus as king to a primarily Jewish audience. Isn't that interesting? Because they, if you look at their history, you will find they completely and totally failed in this mission. To take the good news of God the Creator and God the Redeemer to the nations of the world. That's why I said this is a vision that is hard to maintain, even though we're all Gentiles. This inward focus is something that is so strong within us, this gravitational pull to look inward, that that outward focus to the nations of the world is easily forgotten, hard to maintain. And this is not just in the beginning of the Matthew's Gospel. You see it throughout the ministry of Jesus. For example, we are told that he settled in Nazareth. <laughs> of Nazareth, it was said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was in Galilee. There was Judea in the south, Samaria in the center, Galilee in the north. It was called Galilee of the Gentiles because it bordered modern-day Lebanon, Tyre and Sidon, the Gentile nations. Well, they were despised. They were looked down upon. They were the outsiders. And yet that's where Jesus settled. And he preaches his first sermon is recorded for us in Luke's gospel. In a synagogue in Capernaum. And in Luke chapter, one, um, chapter 4, we read that. And Jesus uses the text from Isaiah chapter 1, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And then he goes on to say, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
But it's what he didn't say after that that's important. Because if you read Isaiah 61, it'll say, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. So the day of the Lord that they anticipated was the day when the year of the Lord's favor upon Israel would be pronounced, but it will be a day of vengeance upon the enemies. Jesus left that out. And if the people were listening carefully, they should have noticed, hey, something's coming. But they were drooling at this local boy preaching so powerfully. Where did this carpenter's son get all this wisdom? And so there was nothing but praise in the beginning, but Jesus continued, and the second half of the sermon got them really angry. Because Jesus talked about two miracles that happened in their history from the time of the prophet Elijah and the time of the prophet Elisha. Elijah, Jesus said, was there were many, many widows who were suffering during the times of famine in Israel, but Elijah went to a non-Jewish woman, the widow of Zarephath, I think it was, if I'm not mistaken. And there he did his miracle of feeding her. And then he talked about Elisha. He said there were many lepers in Israel. But God sent Elisha to Naaman, the conquering Syrian, the Gentile king who had conquered them, and healed him of leprosy. Oh, all that admiration got flushed out in a moment, and they wanted to kill him. That was their reaction. You, you are telling us that our God blessed the Gentiles and not us? That angered them. That's the extent to which not only had they forgotten their mission, they were actually angry at anybody you remind. By the way, this is why Jonah ran. The story of Jonah in the Old Testament. And God told him to go to preach to Nineveh. He said, are you kidding? And he went off in the opposite direction. And then you will notice in, in Matthew's gospel, remember the two miracles, the feeding miracles. Five loaves and two fishes, then a different number of loaves and fishes, a different number of people. Well, we get it, Jesus, you know. Why, why does the gospel writer include two identical, almost identical feeding miracles? I mean, there were so many things in the life of Jesus that's all being compressed in such a short period of time. Uh, we could have heard something else. Why repeat a similar miracle? <sighs> Go back and read the account in Matthew's gospel, 15 and chapter 15 and 16, I think, of the two feeding miracles you'll notice something very interesting. Sandwiched between those two stories are two other small stories. They look unconnected, but they're all, all saying the same thing. The one story is of a Canaanite woman who comes and asks Jesus to heal her son, or daughter, I forget which one it was. And the disciples are all upset. Well, you know, this is a Gentile. What is she doing here? And Jesus, of course, heals her. The second story immediately after that was a rebuke to the Pharisees for focusing on cleaning the outside of the cup but not cleaning the inside. The, the common link between those two was you guys are missing the point. You're, you're calling that which is important to God unclean. You get it all wrong. Okay, the Canaanite woman is not unclean, but you're treating her as unclean, so you didn't want her to come anywhere near me. You were upset when I healed her daughter. The same focus on the inside and the outside of the cup. And then sandwiched around those two inside are the two feeding miracles. The interesting thing is the first one was feeding people from within Israel. The second was done in the Decapolis across the Jordan, feeding Gentiles, who then praised the God of Israel. Jesus was bread for the whole world, not just for the Israelites. And again, they got it all wrong. This is the famous story of the prodigal son. So often when we read that story of the prodigal son, it's about the, the boy who ran away. And it is, it is. It does show the father heart of God. It does show that there is more joy in heaven over one sinner that repents. But we often miss the beginning and the end. 
because the beginning of Luke chapter 15 says the Pharisees were grumbling that Jesus was eating and drinking with the wrong kind of people. Therefore, he told them this story. In other words, Jesus told the story of the prodigal son because he wanted to speak to the Pharisees who were upset that he was hanging around with the wrong kind of people. And that's why the story ends with the father, not with the younger brother, pleading with the older brother, are you going to come and join the party or not? Are you going to rejoice with me that I have come to save Gentiles too? It was an open-ended invitation to Israel to change her minds. Of course, she didn't. Because we're not told what the elder brother did because the whole point of the parable was to focus on the Pharisees and engage us as readers and say, are you going to come in and celebrate the fact that God loves the people that we don't love who are our enemies? And then we come to the famous incident of the cleansing of the temple. Why why was Jesus so furious? He came in, if you're not familiar with the story, at the outer court of the Gentiles, there were money changers who were changing money and he overturned the money changers' tables. He made a little uh, impromptu whip and he drove out all the animals for sacrifice that were being sold. And he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations and you have made it a den of thieves. Why was Jesus so upset? Well, of course... The people who were doing this stuff were using a legitimate system. God himself had said to them, you can't be carrying sheep and oxen from miles and miles away to the temple. By all means, just bring money, buy an animal for sacrifice and uh, um, sacrifice. So the system was legitimate, but they were fleecing the people. There was certainly that problem, but there was a much, much bigger issue going on. You see, the temple was divided into many parts and access was controlled. Right in the center was the Holy of Holies, which contained the Ark of the Covenant. Only the high priest could go in only once a year on the Day of Atonement and only with the blood of that uh, animal. And then he had to come out. Then the next to it was the court of the priests. The priests could go in there, but ordinary people couldn't. Then was the court of the men. Jewish men could go in there, but not the women. Then was the court of the women. And then outside was the court of the Gentiles, the outer court. If there was any non-Jewish person attracted by the worship of Yahweh who wanted to come and worship, the only place where they could come was the outer court of the Gentiles. And Jesus said, you guys have made that place. The only place where Gentiles can come and worship me, you have made it into a noisy, noisy, clattering den of thieves. So get out of this place. And he walked out and said, your temple is left to you, desolate. You never accomplished your mission. You're finished. That was what infuriated. That's why he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations. But you have made it into a den of thieves. And so when the Great Commission comes at the end, it, this is not an isolated commandment. Just like Jesus didn't pop up in a vacuum, the whole missionary mandate didn't pop up out of nowhere. It was a continuation of something that started with Abraham and came to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So Matthew opens with a genealogy, including women, that is unique, three women who are non-Jewish, and it ends with the Great Commission. And in between, in the life of Jesus, we see him continually correcting Israel's myopic vision, forgetting the fact that the gospel was for all nations of the world. And unfortunately, much has, very little has changed. Even though we're all Gentiles, even though we're all beneficiaries of this focus, 
in local church after local church I have found, and especially in our denomination, which is a missionary denomination, this is the dimension of the vision that leaks the fastest. There is a relentless gravitational pull inward, and so it takes a tremendous amount of intentional focus to be maintaining that focus outward. And for this, it requires a radical reconversion. As one man put it this way, we all need to be born again, again. Why do I say that? See, usually when we ask or think about or testify about our conversion, we talk about the day we decided to follow Jesus, the day we made a decision for Christ, the day we prayed the sinner's prayer. And I don't mean to minimize any of this. I did that in India at the age of 16 in the home of the Canadian director of, or the international director of Youth for Christ in those days. So I made a decision. I prayed a prayer. Somebody led me in that. I'm not saying those things aren't important, but we think of our conversion almost exclusively in terms of some decision I made to follow Jesus. But is that the way the scriptures portray our conversion? Now, here's what the Apostle Paul, who was that relentless missionary to the Gentiles, here's what he said in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12, 14, and 15. Not that I have already been made perfect, but I press on to take a hold of that for which Jesus Christ took a hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken a hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on. Press on for what? I press on to take a hold of that for which Jesus Christ has taken a hold of me. So Paul does not see his conversion as some decision that he made to follow Jesus. He sees his conversion as Jesus taking a hold of him for his purposes. And now Paul is spending the rest of his life to grab a hold of that purpose for which Jesus took a hold of him. So conversion, first and foremost, is not some decision we made to follow Jesus, but Jesus taking a hold of us to fit into his purposes, which have never changed. And he goes on to say, all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. So it's not just for Jesus. It's not just for the apostles. It's just not just for the super apostles like the apostle Paul. It's just not for gifted evangelists or whoever. It is for all mature Christians. Maturity involves coming and growing to this understanding that we have been taken a hold of by Jesus for his purposes to bless the nations of the world. Now you say, well, isn't that just semantics? No, no, it's not semantics, and I'll tell you why. Because our language is crucial. The words that we use end up shaping the way we live our lives. And if Jesus remains a choice that I made, he will be one among many other choices that we make of spouse, of projects, of how we spend our money, how we spend our time, what we are passionate about, how we spend our leisure time how we spend retirement. He's one among many, and so he gets his little slot, one and a half hours on a Sunday, and maybe a little bit more time than that for some of us, and then the rest of the thing. He shares the stage with the rest of us, all the choices that we made, right? It's a fragmented life where Jesus and his kingdom and his mission and our life as citizens of the kingdom is one little compartment. It's a fragmented life. But if, on the other hand, I see my conversion not as some choice that I made to follow Jesus, but Jesus taking hold of me for his purposes, then every other choice in my life gets integrated under this great commission. Who I choose to marry, 
what kind of job I have, how I treat people, how I spend my time, how I spend my money, how I spend my retirement. What do I do with my thought life? What are the kind of books that I read, the entertainment? Every single thing gets integrated under this overarching commission. Jesus' purposes for me. That's an integrated life, not a fragmented life. We need to see our conversion not in terms of an fragmented life where Jesus fits into a broad scheme of choices, but a life that is integrated under Jesus' purposes for you and for me. Let me give you some illustrations of what an integrated life or a fragmented life might look like. Decades ago, in the early years of my time in Rexdale, there was a businessman, he's long since gone home to be with the Lord. He uh, was a very successful businessman, and he loved to play golf. Nothing wrong with it. I don't play golf, but uh, many people play it, and they enjoy it. And he used to love to go down in the wintertime to Florida to escape the winters here and play golf, and that was fine too. But the interesting thing was, he always chose the week of the annual missions conference at Rexdale to disappear for his golf game in south of the board. He just couldn't stand that particular week in the life of the church. That's a a Christian who has a fragmented approach. Contrast that with a businessman who had an integrated approach. I was speaking at a Pioneers Conference in Thailand um, in 2008, 2009, I think it was. And there was a beautiful multicultural worship team made up of people from many, many different nations. Way in the back over there was an older looking man and most of the time his head was down he was busy playing his bass guitar with the group so one day I ran into him at breakfast I'd eat breakfast fairly early for a bunch of personal reasons and so he and I were chatting so he told me he was a pharmaceutical salesman from out in the west coast somewhere in Oregon and his worship leader had said to him look there are 500 missionaries that are gathering together for this conference and we need to put together a worship team would you be willing to join us for 10 days? And this man said yes. So he took 10 days of his vacation, spent his own money for hotel expenses, travel expenses, to sit in the back of a worship team and play his bass guitar so that 500 international workers could worship Jesus and be refreshed in their heart. That's an integrated approach. One man ran away during missions conference to play golf. Nothing wrong with golf, but he ran away from the missions conference. Another man runs to it with his own money, with his own time, so that these weary soldiers who have been battling for the kingdom can be refreshed themselves. That's an integrated businessman versus a fragmented businessman, and they both are Christ-following businessmen. Let me give an example of grandparents. I was speaking many years ago at a camp of the woods in Lake Speculator, New York, and one day I was walking back to my uh, hotel, or the, to the tent where we stayed with the uh, director of the camp. And he said the previous week was all about missions. And he said the missionary speaker said that one of the greatest obstacles to new workers going overseas was grandparents. Because the grandparents did not want their grandchildren to be taken away from them. And so they were very, very upset if any of their children wanted to become international workers. And so they, time, time, they spent a lot of time and dissuading them from that and refusing to release them and bless them. He said, grandparents are becoming a great obstacle. Those are, I don't know any of those people, those are fragmented grandparents who probably all call themselves Christian. In contrast to that, 
let me introduce you to another man. He was a pastor. His son and daughter-in-law were worshippers at Rexville for many years. And uh, they were tent makers. Uh, they spent two terms in Afghanistan. Oh, sorry, one term in Afghanistan, two terms in Sudan, and one term in Aceh. All difficult, difficult hotspots in the world. And by the third of these four trips, they were married and had children as well. And so I asked him, how does your dad feel about this? You're taking your young, his young grandchildren away, this far away. He said, my dad said to me, when you were born, I dedicated you to Jesus. I settled that issue long ago. That's an integrated grandfather compared to a fragmented grandparent who becomes an obstacle in the way of a son or a daughter who wants to go overseas. I don't minimize that pain. I have six grandchildren. I'd hate to see them far away. But we made that same decision long ago as well. And then when I think of retirement, I want you to watch this because quite a few of you may be at my life stage. I'm 74 now. I've been retired for four years. One man put it this way, and this is going to be on your screen. Since the turn of the century, three words have characterized retirement in the United States. Detachment, relaxation, and leisure. Detachment depicts the release from responsibilities and obligations of career and work. Relaxation describes the manner and mode of living. Leisure is activity that is free from toil and strain, that fills the time and occupies the attention, and then this deadly sentence. Hence, the main objective of retirement has been to change the retiree from a producer to a consumer in every aspect of their life. Hence, the main objective has been to change the retiree from a producer to a consumer in every aspect of their life. That's a damaging and deadly indictment on retirement in North America. One man called retirement a virulent disease in North America. In contrast to that, look at this retiree. In the same conference in Thailand, there were many, many children. There were 250 children that these 500 international workers had. And so there was a huge children's work that was going on. And do you know what? Even though I was the main speaker at the conference and I was identified by my tag, I couldn't get past the door there because children's security needed to be very, very high in those parts of the world. And the guy who was guarding it was, this, was a retired cop from Baltimore. And I happened to be having breakfast with him one day. And I said, what brought you here? And that's when he explained. He said, I retired. He said, but I knew I had skills to be able to offer. And when I needed that, they needed security guards. I traveled all the way on my expense. And then he said, at the end of this conference, I'm going up north. I said, why are you going up north? He said, in this hotel, I because their conferences would happen regularly, I befriended a young woman there who was working, and she was a poor, extremely poor. But I discovered that she and her family had a chicken farm up north. And he said, I know something about farming chickens. So I've started going up there to help them become much, much more efficient in their chicken farm. Now, that's an example, the exact opposite of, of this retirement that's a virulent disease. These are three examples, a businessman, a grandparent, and a, and a retired person who can show you what an integrated life is like rather than a fragmented life. And what is true of individuals, with that I'm finished, is true of churches as well. Churches are called to not live fragmented life where missions has a tiny little part of everything else and is usually a forgotten part of it. But front and center, Jesus' purpose for the nations need to be integrated. It is the big so that under everything else that we do. 
in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost corners of the world. That's why the Apostle Paul closes his letters pleading with local churches to pray for him, to pray for his ministry, to give for that ministry, so that the ends of the earth might hear the salvation of our Lord. I want to leave you with these three questions to be thinking about. On the spectrum from fragmented to integrated, where would you place your own life as a Christ follower? For those of you who are retired, to what extent do the words detachment, relaxation, and leisure describe your life and purpose in retirement? What one specific step will you take to move further towards an integrated life? As a congregation, I want to give you my benediction. And the word that came to my mind, even as I drew at the end of this message, was the word courage. Because I sense that some of you might be afraid of what will happen if I shift my focus from a fragmented to an integrated life. What if I am born again, again, changing the way I see my conversion? So I want to bless you with courage from above. Courage, somebody said, is not the absence of fear, but obedience in the presence of fear because you believe in something. So I just want to bless you with freedom from fear, with courage. Because the text of texture I read this morning is those who turn to the Lord are delivered from all their fears because the angel of the Lord encamps around them. So may fear be neutralized starting this day releasing whole new waves of courageous obedience one step at a time. Do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more on us as a church and ways to connect, please visit us online at firstalliancechurch.org.